Welcome to the Professional Problem Solvers Podcast, Episode 1. My name is Velko Tukchiev and I'm the Professional Problem Solver. I'm a full-stack business manager and I focus on helping businesses to increase their profit, also helping them to build their dream team, create a winning environment, a powerful brand, strong culture, and massive book of dream clients and raving fan advocates. What I will offer you in this podcast series is solutions to problems. I don't know the solution to every problem, but my superpowers are referrals, cross-promotion, branding, and closing deals without offering discount. I'm allergic to discount. I get pimples on very inconvenient spots when I offer discounts or when I even hear the word discount. The word discount is a bad, dirty word. I call it the D word. My core values are persistence, challenge, joy, pleasure, love, integrity, humility, empathy, and wealth. According to StrengthFinder, my five strengths are futuristic, strategic, significance, belief, and competition. My mission is to develop my unique abilities and creative talents daily by being a great leader who empowers millions of people to become the greatest version of themselves and through education and care to eradicate all forms of child abuse from the face of our planet for the sake of God's pleasure. I live in Chicago and I'm the founder of Elko Academy, the most relevant source for leadership, life, sales and marketing skills on the planet. But before all this, a little bit about myself. I was born in Bulgaria, in the second largest city, Plovdiv. But I grew up in Panagirishte. I know, it's hard to pronounce and also hard to spell. I have to Google it every single time in order to spell it correctly. So Panagirishte is famous because during the five-century slavery under the Ottoman Empire was the town with the least amount of Turkish people. And that was the most convenient place to start the revolution. So the revolution, after five centuries of slavery, started from my hometown, which technically gives me that boiling blood and the entrepreneur skill set. <laughs> For some reason, I feel that it comes from there. So I love taking risk. I'm a Sagittarius. And... I came from Bulgaria when I was 19. You know how people ask you, what do you want to be when you grow up? And you can choose to be really anything? Well, guess what? Not everyone can choose anything in Bulgaria. Growing up, I really wanted to be a soccer player. My dream was killed. My dad came to see me in one of the games that I played and I wasn't the best, but I really loved the game. And I was hoping that my dad would come and see me because everyone's dad came to see them. And on this particular game, which was the last game of the season, my dad actually came. So I believe it was because my mom convinced him to. So I scored a goal. It was a huge core memory. And after the game, we were walking back home. And I was waiting for kudos. I was waiting for my dad to say, hey, nice goal, great job. But that never came. So I asked for it. I said, dad, what do you think? 
did you see how I scored a goal? Did you, did you see how well I played? He said, you run like a girl. So that was my first experience with harsh reality or the way my dad would choose to motivate me or build that thick skin. It didn't work out. I didn't continue to play soccer. I didn't pursue my dream to become a world-famous soccer player. Instead, I uh, started hanging out with the metalheads, and I started drinking and smoking and listening to music filled with anger. <laughs> so after that, I felt like my dream was to become an actor. And that was not a profession that paid a lot of money in Bulgaria. So, plus, it was the profession that my dad pursued but failed. So, it, it kind of wasn't an option. You know, growing up, I noticed that in Bulgaria, all the values were messed up. Everything was measured based on material things. Success was measured that way. So, when kids were at the age when they had to pick what the pers what the purpose of their life would be, what to pursue with passion, most of them were heavily influenced by the plan of the parent. I know that happens with Middle Eastern people too, also a lot of Asian people, especially Indian people. In that culture, if you're not a doctor, lawyer, or at least an accountant, you are a failure. And, and that's how the way people in Eastern Europe look at it. So... I wanted to become a lawyer and my parents liked that because that was a reputable profession. So I joined high school in the capital, Sofia, that was an experimental high school, the only one in Europe where high school students would actually learn all departments of law and really focus on history and Bulgarian language and literature and psychology and English. So they could be more relevant experts. And once when they join the university, once when they become accepted in the university, they could, they could be basically those super law makers. So I was excited because it was my passion and I was really looking forward to become this great lawyer. Um, after the first year in the university, I was really disappointed with the corruption a lot of the students who were in my class, in my group, did not show up for lectures or exercises and they ended up winning because of their connections or because of the bribes. So I quickly realized at the age of 18 that unless I have connections or unless I have unlimited resources, unlimited financial resources, it will be 10 times more difficult for me to be able to achieve my dreams in my home country. So I've made a bold decision to leave. And with the first opportunity, I came to the United States in 2004, and I really didn't look back since then. At the airport, I was emotional. I said goodbye to my parents and walked up the stairs to get to the airplane. I was full of excitement. My parents were middle class, not rich by any means, but also not poor. They both valued relationships more than money and possessions. And when I arrived in New York City in May of 2004, I, uh, they took us with a shuttle from the JF Kennedy Airport to Manhattan. And 
my first official step in New York City. Um, I found a penny on the street and I picked it up and I really saw this as a sign, a sign of wealth. So my first job in the United States was a, a maintenance guy in a motel in upstate New York in Lake George. And I was I was the plunger boy. That was my first job. So for those of you that don't know what the plunger boy does, when the guests of the hotel make a poo-poo and it becomes a big mess, they would send me to solve that problem. And I was so good at doing that. I quickly got promoted on the third week to uh, a maintenance boy, a guy who doesn't yet fix light bulbs and stuff like that, but is now in charge of the property's garbage. So single-handedly, I was uh, in charge of 28 huge garbage cans throughout the property, and I was supposed to replace the bags and obviously take care of the garbage. I did really well, and I was promoted after a couple months to um, housekeeper. So now I was able to clean rooms and actually fix some things, also cutting grass and taking care of the beach. I, I, I started to become more comfortable with the language. I knew more than 15 words at that point, so I looked for a second job, and I found a second job as a dishwasher at a hotel the Georgian and now I had two jobs so I quickly started to save up some money because I was working nearly 80 hours a week and I bought my first car in America it was a Mercury Cougar what a beautiful automobile I remember it was $1,500 I bought it from Vermont because the insurance in New York State was very expensive and I also didn't have a US driver's license so it was very difficult to get the vehicle registered in New York, but so much easier in Vermont. So I was able to register my vehicle in Vermont, get insurance for it, and drive back to New York. What a trip. The car was $1,500, and I talked them down to 700 Actually, that was all the money I had. I had $703, and I asked the salesman to sell me the car with all the fees for $700 so I can go to the dollar menu and buy a McDonald's because I was starving. Eventually they sold me the car for $700 and <laughs> they created a big sign in their dealership. Never sell to Bulgarians again. <laughs> Not something I'm very proud of, but I really liked the deal that I made. When I came back to, to Lake George, uh, where I was working and staying, um, the rest of the exchange students, the people that were kind of in my village close to close to where I used to stay, they were impressed with the beautiful car that I had and how much I paid for it. So they started using me as their private agent. So I ended up doing all the talking with my limited English when they bought a car and I was in charge of negotiating the deal. So that started early on for me, almost the third month after I came to the States. I proudly negotiated probably four or five deals for fellow students who ended up buying cars, and I quickly became famous with that in our student community there. Uh, so in the restaurant, I started growing, and from dishwasher, I got, a promoted, I got promoted to a busboy. Uh, 
I worked as a busboy for a couple of months, and then I got promoted to banquet setup. So I started preparing the the large conference rooms for banquets. And after that, my dream came true. I became a bartender. So I was a bartender at the Veranda Bar in Fort William Henry, which is a beautiful hotel, the largest hotel right on Canada Street in Lake George, New York. And um, that was my favorite position there, my favorite job. So I worked as a bartender there off-season and during the next season in my second year in the United States. And then off-season, again, I decided to move to Florida. So I drove to Florida with a Chevy Lumina, 200,000 miles on it, with only $300. And in the New Jersey Turnpike, I found myself with with a broken uh, window, driver's side window went down and never went back up. So my uh, motor for the electric window broke and I tried to fix it, but they asked me for $300 or $350 to fix the motor at the shop and those were all the money I had. So I couldn't accept that offer and I accepted their uh, a garbage bag which didn't quite work for me. So I drove with open window from New Jersey to Naples, Florida. So needless to say, I had the stiff neck. Uh, I found myself in Naples, Florida in 2006, I believe, or 2005, probably October of 2005. And I worked there until July in 2006, or maybe September in 2006. And I was a bartender there. I really enjoyed Florida. I lived in Bonita Springs between Naples and Fort Myers. And at that time, there weren't too many young people. Uh, MySpace was the leading platform. And I did a search on people under 40 years old. So there was about 38 people in the area in 40 mile radius. So not too many young people. But now it's it's beautiful and a lot more people live there a lot of rich people live there so it's a very good area I moved to Chicago in 2006 I continued to be a bartender and a waiter in restaurants uh, I was very polished as a waiter the difference between a server and a waiter is that the server is the person who comes to your table and asks you what would you like to get it just takes the order and you can order well I want a burger and coke and they take the order, they bring you the burger and coke, and they wish you bon appetit. See, the waiter is there to uh, create an experience for you and also to sell. So as a waiter, I was entertaining. I wanted to make my clients feel special, and I also wanted to sell them not the special, but whatever was the most expensive from the menu. So I was famous with uh, leading my clients to cocktails and appetizers and desserts because I did the math and I realized that every one of my clients need to spend $50 so I can make $10 per client and that was my goal. So if I serve 10 people today, then I wanted to make $100. If I serve 20 people today, I wanted to make $200 at least. And I've always looked at this as a numbers game. A lot of my clients, I was always a relational person, so a lot of my clients at the bar, 
used to come back to me because I entertained them and they encouraged me that I need to be I need to be selling a higher ticket item. They said, you're a natural salesperson. So now I had the dilemma. I had to choose what to sell. And I was between selling cars and selling houses, selling real estate. But because I had this uh, passion for cars, I grew up playing with matchbox cars and really visualized having a lot of cars and huge property with, with so many cars. And I, I loved driving cars. So I also had the history of a, of a good flipper. At this point, for a short period of three years in America, I've already owned eight or nine cars, and I purchased and sold each one of those for profit. So I had that natural instinct on how to buy and sell. So I'm going to be direct with you. I was too lazy to go to through the real estate licensing so i never studied for the course i didn't get the license and the reason why i chose car sales was because there was no license so i could just started selling but i didn't know much about the science the art of sales i was natural but i needed more polishing when it comes down to such an expensive purchase you know selling cars is the biggest purchase that American, the average American will make in their lifetime because the average American doesn't own a house anymore. That used to be the norm before, but now the average American doesn't own a house, but most Americans will own a car. So to me, that's the largest purchase. And long story short, I became a car salesman in 2008. I sold cars for a little bit under seven years. And in the beginning, I was a transactional salesperson. I was just very competitive. Uh, I remember my first car that I sold, it was a Polish gentleman who bought a town and country minivan. His name was Stanislav Grabala, and he gave me a $20 tip. So I thought that's normal, and I I started to, to work for tips besides my commission, uh, which was funny. But for the first two years, I was very aggressive, very competitive salesperson, and I realized after I got burned out, because every time when you're transactional, no matter what you're doing, if you're only focusing on the next the next sale, the next sale, and just getting the money, you will burn out. If your motivation is money, you will burn out. So after I burned out, I realized that I don't like building rapport. I don't like, um, you know, spending four hours with someone and not earning their business. This was the part that really had me devastated. I didn't take rejection lightly. So I've made a decision at that point to to work with only people who liked me, respected me, people who see the value in my efforts, people who will show up, people who like me for who I am. And I decided to only do business with people who purchased from me before or people who know someone who purchased from me. So I decided to build the professional problem solver brand and make myself exclusive. So officially in 2008, Nine, the end of 2009, when I became top salesman for first time, I decided to put my entire effort, love, passion, and attention to the people who already trusted me, liked me, and bought from me. So I was great on the phone. I used to make 150 phone calls a day religiously. Those people were answering the phone a lot more often. They were setting up appointments a lot easier. They would show up for their appointments almost 100% of the time. And 
I had no problem closing the deal with them and they had no objections. So I quickly built a massive book of business and I was very fortunate to be able to work four days a week, 100% with repeat referrals and self-generated leads, 100% by appointment only, and earn multiple six figures, working half of the time than my peers, and probably earning four or five times more. Why? Because I focused on building relationships instead of chasing commission. So this is what I try to inspire people to do. Focus on relationship selling, educate your consumers, and look at the big picture. It does take a lot of work in the beginning. It's just like planting a bamboo tree. You don't see anything in the first couple of years, but once when it starts growing, you can't stop it. And then it becomes so flexible, so strong, that it's you can bend it, but you could never break it. And that's kind of how my business was built while I was selling cars. In 2014, it was the best year financially for me during my career as a car salesman, but also a devastating year on a personal level. I was dealing with my ego. I uh, ended up separating with the mother of my child in 2015. And the problems really started in 2014. So during those times, I had my clients, uh, regardless of my emotional level, and that's the beauty of building relationships because the pipeline is there and people will show up no matter what. If I was still selling cars during COVID-19, when all the restrictions happened, I would have still sell the same amount of cars because of the relationship. See, when you practice relational selling, people buy from you because of you, not because of the product that you're selling, because of the color or because of the of the special offering. They do it because of you. That creates a phenomenal feeling of of uh, obligation. You know, people will buy from you when they feel obligated, when they feel that they're buying from someone they're familiar with. You know, they would much rather buy from someone they could have reciprocity with. And this is what I was going for. So what I want to talk to you today is how to create a winning environment at your company. And this is one of the things that most people are trying to build, a winning environment, a strong culture. So how do you do it? Well, I've taken the word culture and I created an acronym, right? So I took each letter from the word culture and I, I built a topic around it. But what is culture? You know, how well we live, the overall mission, our purpose, and our core values is what our culture really is. So if we don't have a mission, if we don't have a purpose, or if we don't even know what we value the most. We are just uncertain of our culture. It doesn't mean that we don't have a culture. We do have a culture. We just haven't defined it yet. And there's nothing embarrassing. I mean, if, you're, if you don't realize what your culture is, I could easily help you with that. And hopefully after this podcast, you'll be able to come to an understanding and, 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 and come to... Um, conclusion on what your culture is. So a person or a business without a purpose 
is under the circumstances. And what we know about business is that business does not care about circumstances. So what are your core values? Because your core values will determine the culture in which you live. And there's no such thing as consequences, you know. A lot of people don't take responsibility for consequences, but in reality, sequence of events is what consequences is. It's a sequence of events that are happening based on choices. So we build our culture based on choices, which leads me to the first letter of the word culture, the letter C. And for C, I put the word choice. The best culture is built when people join the environment based on choice, not control. Control comes from fear. So many, many leaders feel that if they create fear or if they control their environment, they're going to have a strong culture. That's the biggest misconception. Even soldiers go to war because of a personal mission. Those soldiers that were forced to go to war did not work out very well. And they also dealt with a lot of pain after they came back from war because it wasn't their desire, it wasn't their choice. And they were afraid not to obey. So that doesn't work in any business. It only causes trouble. And now people are so sensitive, it will be a big problem. So make sure that the people who are joining your team are doing it by choice. You know those cliche questions? What would you do if money was not a problem? You know, what would you do if you take money out of it? If you could, what would you do with your time? You know, you want your people to literally describe the job description you are offering when they talk about what would they do without, if money was not a problem. You want a perfect fit because there's no shortage of people. You want a perfect fit. Never hire from desperation. The second letter from the word culture is the letter U. And what I want to talk about and the word I picked for the letter U is unity. Unity is the celebration of diversity. Unity is not uniformity. One of the things that I see in a lot of businesses is they want everyone to look the same. We could have people from different communities that believe in the same mission, share the same core values, and have the same belief systems, and they could be different and we can celebrate their differences. And I believe this is what unity really means is the celebration of diversity. So we can celebrate one another's differences and be successful. You know, fingerprints are unique. We're all the same, but, but we're all unique at the same time. The third letter from the word culture is the letter L. And the word I chose for the letter L is love. The reason for that is because rules are meant to be broken. So if you are building a winning environment and if you want a strong culture, you got to make sure that the only law that people follow is love always wins. And what that means is if we're going to have policies, if we're going to have any type of rules, we have to call them laws. And everyone in the environment has to obey the law. That empowers every single team member. So when the person at the lowest position is able to call out the owner of the organization because you have laws that apply to everyone, and what happens when you break the law? You have to deal with the consequences. And again, consequences 
is the sequence of events that are happening based on choices. So being able to have laws gives you the education, but also gives you the choice, which is ultimately how God works. And that's why in my company and in all the clients that I serve, I encourage them to not have policies, not to have rules, but to have laws that apply to everyone in the organization and empower everyone in the organization to be the police of those laws. That really drives the moral up and it creates a phenomenal culture because people who feel empowered by the laws will make sure that everybody who joins your environment will fit. The next letter from the word culture is the letter T. And the word I picked for the letter T is truth. Truth without a twist. Open communication is so ridiculously important for any business and for any relationship. Literally, we practice radical transparency in my organization. Truth without a twist. Just call it with the real word. Be direct. Be brutally honest. This is what we encourage our employees to do and everyone on the leadership team is just offer the truth without any twist. We have the same rules as Vito Corleone, the godfather. We want to know the bad news immediately and the good news could wait until tomorrow. Once, if we're busy, if we're in the middle of, of a heated battle, if we are in momentum, we value momentum more than anything, then don't give me the good news now. Give me the good news tomorrow when I need them in the morning. Bad news, I want to know immediately. The next letter from the word culture is the letter U. And the word I picked for the letter U is, I don't even know if that's a real word, but I chose unoffended. Unoffended people are unhappy. You know, if we don't learn how to live and work unoffended, we will never be happy. Sometimes in a heated battle, people will say the wrong things. People will say things they don't mean, they don't believe. And the way I see my team in my organization and the way I see other teams that I coach and lead, it's just like a family. So imagine you can't really get offended by your dad or your mom or your sister or your brother because you have to forgive them. You know, you still have to go and spend Thanksgiving with them and Christmas and it's your blood. So you can't really get offended. You know that eventually, inevitably, you would have to forgive. So why waste time? Life is short. Instead, don't get offended and don't take life so seriously. Sometimes we're going to roast each other. Sometimes we're going to say things we don't mean. Sometimes we're going to criticize each other when it's not justified. Sometimes we're going to blame each other in moments of weakness. And the more transparent we are with each other, the more direct we are, the better. But there's no room for being offended. We fight again tomorrow. The next letter from the word culture is the letter R. And for the letter R, I picked the word real. One of the things that I really don't like, but I know it works and I know it helps, is fake it till you make it. I mean, that's, that's understandable for maybe the first day or until it get you started kind of like a lighter fluid, but it's not something that you can build a substantial business model on. 
Fake it till you make it could be the worst advice you'll ever get. Especially in sales. You can't really fake energy. You can't really teach people how to be genuinely nice. You can't teach people how to have a strong desire for success. So those are those are things that you have to bring by yourself. You gotta meet us halfway. You know, if you want to build with us and grow with us, you have to be real. You can't fake it till you make it. So real, the real deal is so, so important. And finally, the last letter from the word culture is the letter E, which is empower. Make sure that you empower the culture on a daily basis and everyone has the responsibility to empower the culture. You want people to take ownership because if you don't empower the culture on a daily basis, it will die. It's just like a fire. You need to protect the fire, protect the culture. So, the word culture, I wrote, I broke down to one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight different other words that I believe define the best, the meaning of culture and how to build one for your own organization or your family or your environment. So, the letter C stands for choice. Everybody who joins your environment must be joining by choice. U for unity, celebrate diversity. L for love, love always wins. T for truth, but without a twist. Radical transparency, open communication. U for unoffended, no room for being offended in the best team in the world. I mean, think about it. If, if you're playing on a Super Bowl team and you're losing on halftime, for something that you've worked so hard. You literally dedicated your whole life to win that. And your coach is pissed off. If he walks in that dressing room, do you think that your coach is going to be politically correct and make sure he doesn't hurt your feelings? Or he's going to tell you something that potentially could interrupt your pattern and change the behavior that you've been demonstrating so far in order to win the game? There's no room for you to be offended. And then R stands for real, and E stands for empower. You must empower the culture. So let me know if you if you liked the first episode. Uh, the reason why I wanted to talk to you about culture is because it's extremely important. And I work with clients that share my vision, share my belief system, and they want to win. I can't teach competition. I want to work with people who want to either get out of adversity and are in survival mode and I want to put those people in thrive mode or people who are already winning and they just want to dominate. They just want to be the best and leave a strong legacy. But if you are into relational selling and if people matter to you, then we'll be a good fit. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for listening. And let me know in the comments if you want to hear episode number two. It's a pleasure for me to share my story with you and I truly appreciate your support. Make it a great day. Be a sales professional. And don't be an order taker.